John and Betty Stam were missionaries to China in the early 1900s. And in 1934, the Chinese communists took John and Betty captive, originally hoping for some kind of ransom. When they realized that wasn't going to happen, they killed both of them. Vance Christie, one of their biographers, explains how John was ordered to kneel. He did so on one knee and spoke a few words to his captors. The local residents were not standing near enough to hear what he said. Suddenly and savagely, one of the soldiers stepped forward and slashed his throat with a large knife. The missionary's lifeless body crumpled forward to the ground. The witnessing crowd saw Betty shudder, then drop to her knees. A moment later, a large sword flashed through the air and struck through the back of her neck, killing her instantly. Upon hearing of his son's death, John's dad, Peter Stam, wrote, Our dear children, John C. Stam and Elizabeth Scott Stam, have gone to be with the Lord. They loved him, they served him, and now they are with him. What could be more glorious? It is true the manner in which they were sent out of this world was a shock to us all, but whatever of suffering they may have endured is now past. They are both infinitely blessed with the joys of heaven. The sacrifice may seem great now, but no sacrifice is too great to make for him who gave himself for us. We are earnestly praying that it will all be for God's glory and the salvation of souls. How glad we shall be if through this dreadful experience, many souls shall be one for the Lord Jesus. And Clara Scott, Betty's mother, wrote two days after their death, when the telegram came Thursday evening saying that Betty and John were with the Lord, we did not mourn as those who have no hope, but could not but feel that a great blessing might come to the cause of Christ here in China and also wherever their martyrdom might be known. Now, John and Betty Stam's story is inspiring and, and challenging and one that I would commend to you, particularly that biography by Vance Christie. But what really amazes me here is the parents' response. Can you imagine? How is it possible to love like that? To desire the good of those who have just murdered your children? It's amazing. And I would submit to you that the reason people, though, the reason why they love like this is because it's their nature to do so. It's their nature to do so, but it's a nature alien to their native self. It's the nature of their heavenly father, native to him, alien to them, which brings us, I believe, to the main point of our text, love your enemies with alien love. And we're going to look at three aspects of this alien love, purpose, pattern, and perfection. And that's going to be a, a loose outline for us this morning. And so first off, we see alien love with a purpose. If you would like to turn, uh, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Alien love with a purpose. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So if you note, starting back in verse 21, Jesus introduced his subject by saying, you've heard it said, but I say. And each time uh, Jesus quoted an Old Testament scripture, and then he went on to correct the Jewish interpretation or application of that scripture. Uh, this time, however, there seems to be a slight difference because nowhere in the Old Testament do we find this teaching, love your neighbor, yet hate your enemy. In Leviticus 19.18, we read, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
And then if we keep reading, we come to verse 34, which says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so here we have this clear call to love not only one's fellow Israelite, but also the sojourner and the stranger, right? The non-Jew. But according to Christ's statement, the Jews were teaching that you were to love your neighbor, yet hate your enemy. Where did that come from? You know, where did they get that idea? Well, Certainly, there were rabbis who were teaching that, but then, you know, where did they get that from? And I believe there's at least two possibilities, maybe more. Uh, first, they may have heard the command to love their neighbor and then understood this to mean their fellow countrymen, their fellow Israelite. To love your fellow Israelite then could be interpreted to hate everyone who was not an Israelite. Doesn't that seem to be the, the tendency of the unregenerate heart? And we know this. Uh, the unregenerate heart. The sinful heart often slips into the error of loving those who are like us and then hating all the rest. That is the, the sinful heart that fuels all racism and bigotry. Second, we can also understand how the Jews could come to this conclusion by looking at uh, some other Old Testament texts. For example, Psalm 139, that great passage where David talks about you know, God knowing his thoughts, he knows his words, even before they're on his tongue. Um, talks about God's omniscience, God's omnipresence, glorious text. But then down in verse 21, David says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Fairly harsh language. And then we also see that God commanded the utter destruction of Israel's enemies, the Moabites, Midianites, Amorites, Canaanites, and so forth. And so it's not excusable, obviously, in God's eyes to come to the conclusion the Jews had come to, but we can see where those who maybe have gone searching for proof text might find encouragement to hate their their neighbor from insufficient readings of the text. The Jews then, it appears, looked at these verses through this lens of a strong national pride, a national pride that understood that they alone were God's people, and so they came to the conclusion that you should love uh, your fellow Jew, yet hate your enemy but they're without excuse because we have texts such as Exodus 23, 4 that teach things like, if you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. This is a clear command to do good to your enemy, not hate him. The Jews had twisted the scriptures so as to appease their sinful consciences and desires, and sinful man's heart is bent this way. It fails to see God's heart on the matter. Now, God's eschatological or end times anger will be poured out on his enemies eventually. This is coming, yet we do see that he shows his kindness to all people now by being slow to anger and by pouring out blessings on all men, which we call common grace. And so God is able to, uh, on the one hand, love people, while at the same time have a hatred for those who continue in their rebellion. God is able to do that. John Piper has kind of tried to explain it this way. Hate can be intense loathing of a quality, or hate can be beyond that, the intense intentionality to destroy. Love, similarly, can be an intense delighting in a quality, and it can be an intense intentionality to bless, 
even in spite of the presence of some unsavory quality. And we're not God, but we can have also a hatred for God's enemies and still then look forward to the day when his wrath is going to be poured out and when justice will finally prevail. And to do this is simply to side with God. It's a declaration of loyalties. That's all David was doing there in Psalm 139. He's pondering the glory of of the God of all creation who knows all things. He knows our thoughts. He knows the inner workings of, of everything. And he's everywhere present. That blows David's mind to think of such a glorious God. And so he's saying, I'm with him. That's all he's doing there in verse 21. I'm with God. He's declaring his fidelity. He's saying essentially, I love what God loves and I hate what God hates. I'm with him. I'm with him. And so I think that that understanding allows us at the same time to personally and relationally love people who are presently God's enemies and desire their ultimate good. Some have also called this a judicial hate. We desire those who maintain their wickedness to the end to ultimately be judged because we love righteousness. But that's future. That's in God's hands. But relationally, at the present time, we're to love our enemies. And so what is forbidden is having a heart that says, I wish you were dead, going back earlier on in in Matthew 5. We're forbidden from having murderous hearts, as we see earlier in Christ's sermon. And so this end times or judicial hatred for wickedness isn't to be carried over into personal relationships because we're not the judge. God, the judge, he will destroy his enemies in his time. God, the judge, is also going to render that verdict and execute the sentence. We, though, need to be governed by gospel love. So I see the Jews' error here as a warning for us. We might be able to illustrate this by looking at, say, the subject of gay marriage. Some who have missed God's heart on this subject have really gotten way off track. If you take, for example, Westboro Baptist Church of Topeka, Kansas, in a documentary entitled The Most Hated Family in America, one of their own, Phelps Roper, agreed that the $200,000 the church annually spends to fly to funerals in order to protest was money well spent to spread God's hate. And that so lacks the heart and spirit of Christ. And it fails to distinguish between God's eschatological or judicial hate and the Christian duty to love their enemies. And so I think they've fallen into that ancient Jewish error here. Now, I realize that's an extreme example, but just think of some of the the news shows or articles, blog posts, or Twitter comments that maybe you've read recently from conservative evangelicals around the country regarding the woke mob or certain personalities or politicians on the left. Or maybe even think of your own thoughts or your own speech regarding these things. Is it, is it really any better? You know, the other day I read an article from the Daily Wire with this heading, left-wing activist, school board official, pressure business to cut ties with Colorado church over views on biblical sexual ethics. And the, the liberal journalist being quoted there wrote that supporting the business would spread forced birtherisms I think they were talking about those who would uh, want to have an abortion, but because abortion is being outlawed, that you wouldn't be able to have one. 
homophobia, patriarchy, Genesis-based complementarianism, animus towards faiths not their own, and Bible-inspired ignorance, anathema to a more just society. What, what is your... What are your emotions? What, what is your, your heart? What is your heart's initial response to that situation? I hope it's like David's, that you declare your loyalties. But what is your heart's initial response to that activist journalist? I hope it's grief and compassion because God desires all people everywhere to repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This word love is one we well know. It's that Greek word agape. The analytical lexicon of the Greek New Testament defines agape this way. Love as based on evaluation and choice, a matter of will and action. And so because of those sort of definitions and others like it, some have understood this love for enemies as a love that is disconnected from emotions, it's purely, purely deeds. They believe people can love their enemies by performing a kind deed apart from hearts that wish them well. But I don't believe that quite hits the mark. And I say this because Paul speaks of duty, for example, in, in deeds in 1 Corinthians 13, 3, is not really being love. And he says, if I give my body to be burned, a, a deed, but have not love, I gain nothing. And then he goes on to describe love and says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. We see that as love. And so the love talked about here is not necessarily good deeds disconnected from a disposition of kindness or compassion. Love is a kind deed done with a kind heart and a kind motive. It's both an emotion and a righteous desire. It's a heart of love. That heart of love then fuels loving actions. The love Paul describes once it desires the best for the other person and what is ultimately best for our enemies. Ultimately, what is best is that they know the truth and submit to the truth. Ultimately, what is best is that they hear the gospel, they hear the good news and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and so be spared in eternity in hell. Ultimately, what is best for our enemies is that they be reconciled to God and so glorify him and enjoy him forever. We don't show love for someone by giving them a Band-Aid when we see that they have a gaping chest wound. In light of this and the broader context of Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount, I think we can say that the love shown to our enemies is to be a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, Christ-focused love. Our, Our love is not to be disconnected from emotion, but it's full of heartfelt compassion for sinners. We're to love them in light of the good news. We're to love them with one eye on eternity. And so the blessed that we see being talked about here from verses 1 through 12, genuine believers, they're followers of King Jesus, and they understand that he alone is the true hope for mankind. And so they understand that all the comfort in the world is going to last a mere 70 years or so, but eternity awaits all men. And so we're to love our enemies with this perspective, with this gospel, Christ-centered, eternal, long-view perspective. And we're to love them as Christ loved us. 
1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Well, here's the reason. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ didn't suffer for the sake of suffering. He suffered that he might bring us to God. And so, in kind, we're not to love our enemies for the sake of loving our enemies, as if that was an end itself. We're to love them as God loved us. We're to love them so that they might be brought near to God, which is to seek their highest eternal good. God's heart is, then, that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Christ's Jewish contemporaries most likely thought of the Roman occupiers as their enemies or persecutors. They probably also thought of the Gentile pagans, the idolatrous nations around them as their enemies. Our enemies, our persecutors, might be the woke mob or the far left. And Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for your persecutors. We see prayer here as an example of how to love, love our enemies. Have you ever tried to pray for an enemy and hate them in your heart at the same time? It doesn't work if it was true prayer. It just doesn't work, at least not on a relational level, right? We're, we're unable to sincerely and truly pray to God, the one who orchestrated our own reconciliation and then simultaneously hate others. We can't do that while at the same time claim to love the gospel, Because we were at one time enemies of God. God loved us while we were his enemies, Romans 5.8 explains. True prayer aligns our hearts with God's, and God's heart is one that loves his enemies. And those who are in Christ, we are living proof of that. True prayer then requires that we genuinely desire the good of our enemies, which requires that our desires match our actions. Now, it's interesting that in the very next chapter, in the Lord's Prayer, we see that Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. John Piper pointed this out to me. So we're told to pray for our enemies here in chapter 5, and then we're told how to pray in chapter 6. And so if we take that in context, it seems we ought to be praying for our enemies in something like this. We're to pray that they come to know God as Father. We're to pray that they might acknowledge him as holy. We're to pray that they would desire to see his kingdom come and his will be done. We're to pray that they would come to know his forgiveness. We're to pray that they would hate sin and desire protection from temptation. That's what love looks like. Prayer seeks our enemy's highest good. And so the love talked about here is unconditional service despite the response of our persecutors but it's also, at the same time, a heartfelt desire for their salvation, for their ultimate good. Right? It's a sincere desire for their reconciliation. And not only does Jesus command us to, to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors, uh, we also know throughout the rest of the gospel of Matthew, he leads us by example. He shows us how to do this by his own life. So in Matthew 8, 5, Jesus healed a Roman centurion's servant. He, he loved his Roman enemy. He loved the Roman oppressor, the pagan oppressor. In Matthew 15, 21, we see that Jesus healed the daughter of a Canaanite woman. The Canaanites were, were the, the enemies of Israel, Gentiles, pagans, dogs. 
Yet Jesus had compassion on this woman and loved her to himself. And then while on the cross, Christ prayed for his persecutors, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus loved his enemies to himself. He loved them to the gospel. John Stott writes, Jesus seems to have prayed for his tormentors actually while, on the, while the iron spikes were being driven through his hands and feet. Indeed, the imperfect tense suggests that he kept praying, kept repeating the petition, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them. And then he says, if the cruel torture of crucifixion could not silence our Lord's prayer for his enemies, what pain, pride, prejudice, or sloth could justify silencing ours. Jesus left us this example. He loved his enemies. He prayed for his persecutors. So who are your enemies? The Marxist communists trying to take over our country? Certain politicians? Your boss? Your in-laws? Your mean classmate or teammate? your annoying neighbor, your spouse. Someone said, love your spouse. The person replied, no, because he doesn't act like we're married. Okay, then love him as your neighbor. No, because he sleeps downstairs and I sleep upstairs, so he's no longer my neighbor. Okay, then love him as your enemy. I've actually had that conversation, uh, counseling. Brothers and sisters, do we love people? Do we love our enemies? Do we seek their highest good? Are we willing to sacrifice our own peace and comfort, even our very own lives for our enemies? Jesus loved his enemies by healing them and pointing them to the kingdom. As followers of Christ, this means we're to desire the Muslims, we're to desire the salvation of Muslims all over the world and be willing to sacrifice our time, our resources, and even our very own lives for their highest good. In fact, it was this very understanding that really began the modern missionary movement. This was the heart of William Carey, who is attributed as being the father of modern missions. His sister wrote of him that he was always, from his first being thoughtful, remarkably impressed about heathen lands and the slave trade. She says, I never remember his engaging in prayer in his family or in public without praying for those poor creatures. See, these people saw that man's greatest need was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they would go to the cannibals and they would pray for their salvation. They would sacrifice financially to see the gospel spread. They sought to love their enemies practically, but also with a purpose. So they would take care of their medical conditions. They, They would heal their wounds, but always with this one eye on eternity on their salvation. I think of John Payton, missionary to the New Hebrides, uh, literally cannibals wanting his own head, and he prayed for them. He loved them. He did good to them. And so we strategically, sacrificially, genuinely love our enemies because this is what God has done for us. And to love someone with a gospel agenda is not to to love them with some uh, wrong or sinister motive, We don't love them so that God thinks that we're great. We don't do good to them so that we move up some sort of spiritual pyramid scheme, some sort of gospel amway. 
to love them towards the kingdom is to seek their ultimate good. It's the best motive. Philippians 2.15 says that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Uh, We're told elsewhere in Matthew that we're to be the salts and lights of the world. So we're to be beacons of hope, which means that we're to influence people toward Christ at every turn, at every opportunity. And so we're to have an alien love with a purpose. Second, this alien love is to follow a pattern. We only love like this because we are children of God. Jesus says again in verse 43, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? And so we love because of God's example. We love so that we might be sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. This is obviously not highlighting how a person becomes a child of God, but as D.A. Carson has pointed out, it's the necessity of pursuing a certain kind of sonship patterned after the Father's character. So the blessed... True believers, those who long for the kingdom, followers of the Messiah, those who call God Father, they must be, they will be like their heavenly Father and in increasing measure. And our Father's example is an unconditional love independent of people's actions. Right, So there's this particular love that God has for His elect, but the love talked about here is common to all mankind. He sends the rain and causes His Son to rise on his enemies and his worshipers alike. This property wasn't the only property that received some rain this weekend. The rest of the town received some rain. And sunshine and rain are God's commodities. He owns them. They're his, and they're required for crops to grow. Uh, They're required for food. And so God provides for all mankind in this way, even his enemies, even those who shake their fist at him and and try to pretend that they don't believe in him. He does them good. His love is manifested in something seemingly mundane as rain and sunshine. In Acts 14, 16, Paul said, In past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. God loves his enemies by doing good to them. He gives them food to eat. He satisfies their hearts with gladness. This is that common grace that I mentioned earlier. Beautiful sunrises, tasty food, family relations, and so forth. These are all gifts from God in ways that he loves all people. Which, as we see in Romans 2.4, is meant to lead them to repentance. It says there, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness... In forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness, His common grace, His love is meant to lead people to repentance. And so He loves them, as we've already said, with a purpose. And so, since we are God's children, we must, we will follow our Father's pattern. Ephesians 5 1 states it clearly. Therefore, 
be imitators of God as beloved children. Children pick up the traits of their parents. They are naturally like their parents. I see aspects of my, of my character in my children, both good and bad. Sometimes it's shocking. I see that they love the outdoors like I love the outdoors. Uh, if you're a baseball, or not a baseball, that tells you how much I'm following. If you're a basketball fan, they always root against the Lakers. <laughs> if you're God's child, you'll naturally be like him. You'll imitate your heavenly father. Again, to some degree and in increasing measure. You, you can't help but do that. And so these are marching orders for us. This is, these are directions helping us understand how we're to live our lives. If you are a believer, if you claim Christ as your king, well, one of the things you ought to be working at and growing in is loving your enemies because you are God's child. But to do this, to love enemies, to, to do them good and wish them well is obviously and clearly supernatural. When we talk about our enemies, we're not only talking about the roommate who slanders us around campus, that is our enemy, but we're also talking about uh, people who call us bigots and wish that we were dead, that we were just wiped off the planet. We're talking about the, the Nazi to the Jew. We're talking about people who hate us. These are enemies. And we all have enemies. If they rejected Christ, they're going to reject us. And so this love that we're talking about is supernatural. It's patterned after the love the Father has for his enemies. And only his perfect love in us can accomplish this. Otherwise, it's not genuine love. To love those who love you is ordinary. Pagans do this. Those who, who, who don't claim God as Father do this. It's easy to love those who love us. It's easy to love our friends, people who are nice to us. Easy to love them. Easy to love those who, who, who like us. If someone invites us over for dinner and we enjoy an evening together, it's no virtue when we return that invitation. That's ordinary. Pagans do that. If I do good because I believe good is going to be returned to me, then this is nothing other than self-love. And tax collectors and Gentiles do this. Tax collectors in the first century were considered traitors because they, they had teamed up with the Roman oppressors and typically defrauded their own countrymen even. We might think of them as American defectors to Al-Qaeda, you know, really bad, dishonorable guys. And the Gentiles were pagans. They were the far-left liberals of our days. They were, they were those who belonged to cults, unbelievers, determinedly. And Jesus says, to love those who love you is not something to congratulate yourself on. It's actually quite ordinary. To greet your brothers, wish them well, that's normal. Even gangs are extremely loyal to their own and friendly with each other. But to love your enemies, to greet them, to wish them well, truly, that's otherworldly. That's a supernatural kind of love, an alien love. And only those who've been touched by the grace of God can genuinely love their enemies and seek their highest good. Only God's children can love with the highest of motives. And we love, we learn, because he first loved us. While we were his enemies, Christ loved us to the death. He set aside his comfort, his rights, his privileges to pay our death penalty. We can love our enemies only because he first loved us. We can love our enemies because, as Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. Isn't that a lovely text? Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So God's love, alien to us, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. If you're not a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit, and that love hasn't been poured into your heart, so there's no way you can love your enemies truly. And so believers have been invaded by this alien love, and so love their enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Does this characterize you? Do you love your enemies? Are you known for this? When people think of you, is this what they think? I hope so, in an increasing measure. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, Do you pray for people who persecute you and who use you despitefully? Do you ask God to have mercy and pity upon them and not to punish them? Do you ask God to save their souls and open their eyes before it's too late? Do you feel a great concern? It is that which brought Christ to earth and sent him to love, sent him to the cross, and we are to treat other people like that. God help us. The blessed love because they have an alien love that enables them to imitate the pattern of their heavenly father, an alien love with the pattern. And then third and last, we're to have an alien love with perfection. Verse 48 says, therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Uh, this text is very similar and likely a reference to, I believe, Leviticus 19.2, which says, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Right? Because you're children of God, because you have this alien love that's been poured into your hearts, through the Holy Spirit, you must be perfect. That's the standard. The word perfect is translated elsewhere in the New Testament as complete or mature. And, and so because of that, some have said that you must be complete or you must be whole, but not necessarily perfect. Yet to be complete or to be mature like your Heavenly Father is not any less daunting. To be a little perfect is still to be perfect. To be mature or complete like God is to be perfect nonetheless, at least in my reckoning. And so I think perfect is, is a fine translation here. But the Greek construction of our text could also have a dual meaning. It, it could mean you shall be perfect, future tense, or you must be perfect, a command. And I see both applying to the blessed and taught throughout Scripture. You know, one is the believer's destiny, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's going to happen. You're going to be perfected when you see Christ face to face. Yet the other is God's standard. We will one day be perfect, but until then, perfection is nevertheless the standard. That's what we're aiming towards. So when we fail, I think we completely miss the point. We say, well, nobody's perfect. Well, somebody is perfect. It's not us. It is Christ. So I think when we fail, we're to grieve because we didn't imitate our Heavenly Father. Right? It's sin not to be perfect. I think we could all agree that would be a simple definition of what sin is. Uh, sin is not to be perfect like our Heavenly Father. He sets the standard. He's the one that declares what the standard is. And so when we don't measure up to Him, whatever that failure is, it is sin. But on the other hand, we're also not to wallow around in self-pity and partakes of acts of penance. Right? And so our, our failures, 
should drive us to the cross and remind us of the glories of Christ's perfection. He walked on this earth and met that standard. And so we praise him for that. Yet at the same time, it also exposes and reminds us of our desperate need for a savior, even on this side of salvation. Right? When we say that we're a Christian, we're declaring to everybody that we just can't get our act together. And we needed a bloody savior to die on a wicked cross on our behalf. And so that causes us to love the gospel, to love our Savior all the more. And so that's how our failures work. It ends up in praise and glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so these words, you shall be perfect, are also a fitting conclusion to Christ. You've heard it said, but I say to you teachings that started back in verse 21. So this kind of puts a, you know, a parenthesis around text that didn't have chapter and verse markings. It, it ends that section, and then we see the beginning of chapter 6. Jesus starts talking in, in a different vein. He's still preaching but this is a new phase that he's going into. To enter into the kingdom of heaven, one's righteousness must, must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. That's what we learn there in Matthew 5. This is a real standard. And so a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is one that includes everything that happened in chapter 5. It's one that does not partake in murderous anger directed towards one of God's image bearers. It's a heart that so loves God's plan for marriage that it will go to drastic measures to avoid lusting after people who are not their own spouse. It's a heart that hates divorce. It's a heart that's on a gospel mission 24-7 and so can love those who treat them poorly. We can turn the other cheek. We can go two miles with someone who asks us to go one mile, not because we're so great, but because we're living for something else. We, we, we hold our rights with an open hand. We can give those things up for something that's eternal. And it's a heart that prays for and schemes up ways to love their enemies to Christ. Essentially, it's the fruit of a changed heart, a renewed heart, a regenerated heart. It's a heart that loves what God loves and hates what God hates. It's fruit of that kind of heart. And so kingdom citizens, we learn there in the Beatitudes that kick off this sermon are those who are poor in spirit. They are that. They, they see their spiritual need. They realize their spiritual bankruptcy. And so they see King Jesus as their only hope. These are hearts that cling to the promises of God that were given to them while they were still his enemies. Like Ezekiel 36, where God says, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. God's solution to their disobedience was to give them new hearts, new affections for him, desires, reorienting their inner person. And this is a solution to our problem as well. We need new hearts. Before God gave us new hearts, we loved our sin. We didn't know God. We didn't love God. And so the promised heir of the kingdom the promised seed of Abraham that would be a blessing to all nations has finally arrived on the scene and his name is Jesus Christ and he came to bring about the end of the exile. He came to destroy the separation that sin has caused between God and man. So, and so through his death on the cross for our sins, he brought about this glorious reconciliation. Kingdom citizens then, because they have been given new hearts, ones that love this king and his kingdom, they long to see this king rule the land. 
They see his ways as beautiful. And so they, they turn from sin and embrace his ways. And so they naturally long to see all people everywhere bow and worship this king. And because this is their heart's desire, they long to be perfect as their heavenly father is perfect. And they can't help but love their enemies with alien love. And so this is why the parents of John and Betty Stam responded as they did to this terrible news. This is why they loved their enemies. They loved their enemies because they were true children of God. It was, it was nothing amazing about them. It pointed to the evidence of the Holy Spirit True conversion in their lives. God's love had been poured into their hearts. They could do no other. Their desire was the glory and honor of their king. God's love has been, had been poured into their hearts. Their hearts were saturated with the gospel, and so they loved those who murdered their children. They loved their enemies because God had loved them while they were still his enemies. They loved him with an alien love. May this be said of us to the glory of Jesus Christ, our king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we praise you and thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel. Lord, when we contemplate John and the parents of John and Betty Stam and their response to this terrible situation, it clearly points to the value of your son, Jesus Christ. It proclaims his glory and power and might. And Lord, we understand that through faith in your son's person and work, we too have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Your love has been poured into our hearts. Yet we also understand that we battle the flesh and there's conflicting desires at times. Lord, help us to long to see righteousness rule and reign. Help us to desire that every single knee would bow to Jesus Christ. Help us to have this long view where we desire to see your enemies crushed. Yet at the same time, Lord, help our hearts to be tender towards our fellow man because you've been tender towards us. And Lord, we need your, your help in this. We can't do it. We understand that because it's not natural to us. It's, it's your love in us. And so strengthen us towards that end. Lord, help us all here this morning to be characterized by this, that when people think of us, that this would be what they think not so that they would glory in us, but that they would see it as otherworldly, as supernatural, and that it would draw them to you, that it would cause them to pursue you, the supernatural one, the worthy one. And Lord, we ask this, and lift this up in prayer 
expressing our neediness and dependence upon you to do these things. For your glory and our joy, amen.